morning. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 13. We're going to be parking there for most of this morning. And so while you are turning there, I was reading um, a lot this week in preparation for this uh, sermon and, and came across uh, um, an article uh, written by one person that talked about now it seems acceptable at this time of our lives and this time and age uh, that um, it's acceptable to promote ourselves, to have an abundance of pride in ourselves. And some, it's, it's very acceptable. It's even encouraged. We even encourage with each other, just be proud of yourself. Just, and just be proud of it. It's, it. it's okay to talk about yourself. It's okay to, uh, man, but we see it all over the place where people just talk, I, 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 I. There's so many eyes in the world today. And this article was talking about that. And I was like, man, that, that is so true. We, we see that thanks to the advent of, of social media, especially, and the Internet and stuff. People have a voice far and wide, and we see that more and more now. And, and then I, was, I got down to the end of the article, and it was, like, written in, like, 1980. <laughs> I was like, 1980? You're talking about this in 1980? I was like, man, what, what would this person think if they were, you know, here now, 2018? And so I started looking back and, you know, more of these articles and they become less uh, abundant. But you see these articles even before then and before then and before then. You know, it seems like the, it's always been the, a time for people to kind of be arrogant, to be prideful. I'm going to guess, and since I went back far enough to say that since the dawn of man, man has been proud. Okay? In some way, some force, in, 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 in some um, portion, uh, there's been an abundance of, of pride, abundance of arrogance. Now, I want to uh, make sure that you understand, like, there is, like, being proud of what you do. There's being proud of your, of your spouse. There's being proud of your kids. There, there's being proud of your accomplishments. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we begin to be proud fooled, when we begin to boast, when we begin to compare ourselves to others and how much better that we are than others, and when we begin to promote ourselves as greater than others, then that's when we get into a line of being sinful. Whenever that we get, when we cross the line of just being proud and being proud for. You know, I came across uh, one of the conversations that stand out with me, and, and if I was to ask here for people to raise your hands and say, how many of you have ever met like a very prideful, very arrogant person? I would imagine that everybody in here could raise your hand. And so whenever I was thinking about that, uh, the people that I've come across uh, a few years ago came across one person uh, in my path uh, 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 thinking about this. Uh, for those that, that don't know, like my wife and I, uh, well, she in particular, I was along for the ride. Um, uh, she, uh, she went through cancer, and so we had that, and we went through it, and we got through it. Uh, but in the middle of it, a person came along and, you know, I thought trying to be my friend or something and was asking questions, and, and the questions he was asking was, was very specific, so I knew that he must have some experience with, with cancer in of himself because people just don't ask those type of questions. So I was like, okay, so I explained it to him in those things, and so I told him, like, you know, what stage and, and a bunch of other uh, technical stuff that went along with it. And whenever I got done, he then compared about how his wife's cancer was so much worse than mine, than my wife's. And when I was sitting there, I'm like, am, am I hearing this right? Are, are, are we having a contest here? Actually, my last thought was, sir, we are not going to be friends. So, <laughs> so I get to that. So 
whenever that we come to the Bible, we come to, to uh, chapter 13, and we're going to be talking about humility. Uh, chapter 13, the first part of this is, is about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Now, when we talk about humility, man, there is something about a humble person that, that is just so attractive. Something about a humble person that, uh, that draws other people in. And if I was to ask you to raise your hand, I'm sure that all of you could think of at least like one person that was humble. And the thing is about humble people, like they don't seem to be uh, very abundant, is they never talk about themselves. You know, arrogant people, man, we can name like a dozen of those. But humble people, man, you, you would have to think for a second maybe. Maybe you know one, maybe you know two. But prideful people, man, you ain't got enough fingers and toes to go that far, okay? But humility is amazing because it invites people in. And the only way that we ever hear about a humble person most of the time is about other people sharing about that person or having a direct relation with that person. I was, uh, I was, I was reading a story about another guy. He was in Dallas, and he was at a restaurant, and uh, him and his friend were eating there, and, and they noticed a waiter um, uh, busying around, and uh, their waiter had come and waited on him, and they could tell, like, he had a, a, a foreign accent, and, and, and he was just doing an amazing job the way that he spoke to people, you know, politely, getting everything that they need, everything they wanted, continuing meeting, like, all their needs and going above and beyond what a normal uh, waiter job was. So curious, uh, uh, whenever he came to their table next, they asked him, man, like, like where are you from? And so he told them, and he goes, man, like, what did you used to do? And, and uh, come to find out in the conversation, he used to be in executive management of large companies. And so they were wondering, man, like, why in the world would you want to have a job as a waiter? And so whenever he got done, he said, but now I get to serve people. And he bowed his head and he went on about his job and doing what it was. And that kind of person makes a lasting effect. Would we have ever known that? If, if this guy hadn't assure, uh, shared that story, would we ever have known about that person? No, but those people do exist, and they are all around us. Uh, <clears throat> the rest of the evening, that guy just thought about it. Man, if we could only be humble like that, how much nicer would the world be? If everybody in our government, if everybody in our schools, everybody in our workplaces, everybody that we meet along the way, if we were all to show humility, if we were all to be humble, what a world that would be. There would be, everything would just get done. There would be no arguing on who to do it, when to do it, how it's going to be done. It would just get done. Now, people that constantly talk about themselves, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get the arrogance because as soon as they leave, there's enough people to keep talking about them. They don't have to keep talking about themselves, okay? So, so there's no reason for it whatsoever. But we do. We live in a very proud generation. Man, us, 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 I, 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 us, us, us. And, and, and it is acceptable, and, and, and I fear for that, but I don't think that's anything new, okay? But it, but it does create an, an alarm. Uh, pride is considered a virtue, and like I said, there's a difference between being proud and being, pri and being prideful. But, uh, being, uh, but pride is considered a virtue. Humility is considered a weakness. And so whenever that we get into uh, John chapter 3, we're going to be seeing uh, how different that that is. Um, uh, to, be, uh, to have a, uh, a sense of humility to serve others instead of just worrying about one's self. 
Whenever we're talking about prideful people, a, a friend of mine this past week just said, man, if you want to see some of the most rudest people, the, pe- the people that want to get in, in line first, the people that cut and just make sure that they get what they want, go to a Christian conference, okay? It's like, ice. <laughs> that's bad, okay? If we're at a Christian conference, everybody should be holding up to open the door to where nobody can walk in because everybody's just holding the door, okay? And that's the way like it should be. Now, when we get into John chapter 3, I want to give you some background here. We reach a turning point uh, in in the gospel of John right here. Up until this point, we've been talking uh, uh, throughout John, like he's been writing about the public ministry of Jesus. And so we're getting to really like his last night. Uh, We are getting to where Jesus' public ministry here on earth is coming to an end. So this is really kind of the turning point in the book of John. On the first day of this week that we see Jesus in the upper room uh, uh, with his disciples, on, on the first day of this week when he comes to Jerusalem, he is greeted, man, with applause and just uh, uh, curiosity and an intrigue about who is this Jesus. And man, they're welcoming him in there. By the end of the week, they're yelling to crucify him all in this one week. And so this is the night before. This is the time of, of Passover during Passover, man, he's going to be, by the end of it, he's going to be utterly rejected, and he's going to be crucified on the cross. But the great thing is, it doesn't end there, and we're going to see that. Uh, it doesn't just end there, it continues on, because through, throughout his crucifixion, we get to see the glory of God revealed, and the disciples there get to see it as well. <clears throat> it says in the Bible in John 1, 11, that and, and that he had come unto his own people, to Jesus, and those who were his own did not receive him. Uh, this was John 1, 11. Whenever that, uh, and that he came into Jerusalem, it wasn't like he was coming to a foreign group of people. The Jews, man, they, they were very much like their own group. No, no outsiders. I mean, they did interact with the outsiders, but in their own group, they only listened to their own people. They only dealt with their own people. Kind of a kind of mentality. And so Jesus was one of their own, but... <clears throat> Uh, but what we see here whenever Jesus starts washing the feet um, and afterwards is that his own people like, end up rejecting them. And Jesus knows that this is coming. He knows his crucifixion is coming. And so instead of being preoccupied with all this stuff going on, instead of being preoccupied with what's about to happen to him, he, he's got one last thing that he wants to do for his disciples. He's got one last thing that he wants to show. He's got one last thing that he wants to demonstrate and teach his disciples. He is not consumed by what's going to happen to him, but he is, he, uh, he is utterly consumed with the love that he has for his disciples. And so in John 13, 1 through 17, we're going to be reading all this and then going through it. So if you got your Bibles there, John 13, 1 through 7. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his, honor, that his hour had come to depart this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. But by the time of supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Jesus, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hand, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got it from supper, laid aside his robe, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a the towel around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, what I'm doing, you don't understand, but afterward, you will know. You will never wash my feet, ever, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. 
One who has bathed, Jesus told him, does not need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. In verse 11, for he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, you are not all clean. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his robe, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and, and this is well said, for I am. So if, your Lord, so if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do as I have done for you. I assure you, a slave is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for your word this morning. God, I thank you for the humility of Jesus Christ. And I thank you for, for him uh, showing us this in your word and for the men who wrote this down to give an account of what happened. So, God, as we continue to walk through your word, just show us the things uh, that you want us to see. And may we apply them to our everyday lives. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. Let's start with the time. The, when this was, like back in, in their time, they had a serious problem back in those days. They didn't have closed-toed shoes. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. It didn't exist. They didn't have boots. Maybe, maybe some of them had some boots, but, but to most of them, all they could afford was, was sandals, probably something homemade. I doubt it was something that they went down to the, to the retail store, to the academy or something like that, and bought, and bought a pair of the recent sandals, okay? Uh, those just didn't exist. So whenever they were talking about washing a person's feet, you got to imagine what they did back in those days, where they walked um, how they got from point A to point B, and they, they walked. I mean, that's what they did. There weren't, there weren't buses. There weren't trains. Uh, some people had maybe some type of wagon to, to get them around, a horse to ride on, but that was very few. And so to get from point A to point B, they had to walk the road. Now, the road, it is not concrete. There were no nice sidewalks. It was nothing manicured. I mean, whatever was in the road was just in the road. There were other things that traveled on the road, if you get what I'm saying. Okay, so there's no telling like what they walked in, what they walked through, or what was on their feet. So when it came time to wash the feet, whoo, that's not a pretty sight. That's not something that we want to, uh, to imagine ourselves doing there. And so uh, at this time, it was very customary for uh, in, in Jewish culture that when you walked into a home, there was a pitcher. And there was a pitcher of water, and there was a bowl, a basin, or, or, or something of that sort there, and a towel. And so whenever that they would walk in, they would take off their sandals, and a slave would come and wash their feet. And it wasn't just any slave. It was really the lowest of the low slaves, because even slaves back then had a hierarchy. And the slaves that would wash the feet were the non-Jew slaves. It was, it was the Gentile slaves. Uh, like not even like regular slaves could wash a person's feet because they felt that too demeaning. So it was the lowliest of lows would actually uh, wash their feet. And so we have the disciples in Jesus. They all walk into the upper room, right? And so they're, they're up there. They walk in. They see the basin. They, they see the water uh, and everything else that's in there. And, and, and they all walk in. And there's no servant there. So we got, so we assume that the same tradition, that they're very well aware of this tradition, uh, of this custom of the day to wash each other's feet. But they just go in and they all, uh, they all sit down. Now, if we back up in the Bible some, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 26 through 27, this was days before Jesus had said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Now, 
if they had really taken hold of that and really thought to themselves that whenever they walked into the room, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, then maybe something would have clicked on them and said, you know what, maybe, maybe I should wash the feet. Maybe the whole story would have changed out a little bit differently. <clears throat> if we look, though, in a parallel passage in Luke 22, we can see that around this time that the disciples have been arguing with each other. In Luke 22, verses 24 through 26, it says, Then a dispute also arose among them, the disciples, about who should be considered the greatest. But he said to them, Jesus, The kings of the Gentiles dominate them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it, is, but it is most, must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you, you must become like the youngest, whoever leads, uh, <coughs> whoever leads like the one serving. The disciples had been arguing who was the greatest among them. They have been with Jesus for quite some time. His ministry is coming to an end. So they had all the ministry up until then. And the teachers of Jesus had time with Jesus, one-on-one -on -one time, small group time with Jesus. I mean, how amazing would that have been to be able to sit at the feet of Jesus and actually hear Jesus okay, speak to you. And so they had, they had been arguing just earlier about who was going to be the greatest of them. So they were talking about the greatest of them. Jesus uh, it, it tells them, if you want to be the greatest, you've got to be the least. And so they walk into this room where, where everything uh, is to be able to wash their feet, and still no one does anything. <clears throat> In uh, John 13, 1, it says, that, uh, it says that Jesus knew his hour was come. See, Jesus was on a, div on a divine schedule. This schedule had already come out. And, uh, and, and it was already set, and he knew what was coming. He, he had come from the Father. He, he was down here with man. He was going to return to the Father and glorified. He knew these things was coming. But instead of being concerned with his glory, like the disciples were, were concerned with who was going to be the greatest, instead of being concerned with his glory, he was concerned for his disciples. His love for, for, for his, desire, for his dis disciples was to the end. In verse 1 of John 13 says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the fullest of his love. The nature of Christ's love, and he showed it repeatedly, always for others, no matter what, always for others. And we can see that uh, throughout the Bible and throughout scriptures, when he was arrested, he had arranged for his disciples not to be. Uh, when he was on the cross, he, he, had, he had made arrangements for uh, Mary to have a home and care in years to come. And when he was on the cross with his dying breath, he reached out to the thief that was next to him and saved him. He, was con he wasn't concerned with just what was with just himself. He had totally pushed self aside and was concerned about everybody else. He demonstrated his, his love in his last hour. And John MacArthur, he wrote this about this particular scripture. And here's the greatest lesson of the whole account. Only absolute humility can generate absolute love. It is in the nature of love. It is the nature of love to be selfless and giving. Now, how could anyone possibly reject such love? I mean, if you had a person, if you had Jesus in front of you, pouring into you, do you think you could actually reject him? Do you think that is a possibility of having been with Jesus, close with Jesus for a long time, personal relationship close with Jesus? 
sad thing is men do it all the time. We do. We do it all the time. We reject the love of Jesus all the time. In uh, verse 2, uh, uh, it said, Jesus, uh, it, it said, Now by the time of supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon's carrier's son, to betray him. Man, do you, do, you, do you see this tragedy that is unfolding right here? The tragedy of Judas. Here's a person who got to be under the umbrella of Jesus personally, basking in his light, basking in his glory, in his knowledge, in his wisdom, day in, day out, right there with him. Somehow, the more that grew, the more that he saw that, the further it pushed him away. The further that it pushed Judas away from Jesus. The contrast between Jesus and Judas, man, it, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And perhaps this is the very reason why that this is mentioned here in the Bible. That's kind of a backdrop setting of what Jesus is about to do in these scriptures. Man, what drew others close to Jesus, it, it, it pushed Judas away. The same thing as today. Man, you can do great things today. And let me tell you, you can do some amazing things. You will always make somebody mad. There will be somebody offended. There will be somebody upset. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how great an accomplishment is. Somebody's going to find something wrong with what was done. There's just people like that. I don't know why. Man, praise the Lord, it got done. But there are always people that will find the wrong in something. In Jesus' case here, it seemed like Man, his glory was never ending because the more that people hated him, the more that people were yelling at him, it seemed like the more that Jesus' love shined, right? I mean, the more that they called him out and ridiculed him and, and called for his death, the more that they did that, the more that Jesus' love shined. So we get to number one of, of, of the point here, and I know you don't have your notes filled out, but there is some, some points here you can write down. And for you people that have a hard time with not having any blanks to fill in, here's what I can suggest for you. Write down this point, find a word you like, and underline it. Okay? Then you can pretend like you filled in the blank. Okay? So just work with me here. Number one, Jesus demonstrates humility. Jesus demonstrates humility. Jesus waited until everyone was seated and supper was served. So they've been seated, so, so they have sat and they were served. And then in, in an amazing act of humility, and I would venture to say devastating humility to the disciples, Jesus doesn't say a word. He doesn't give a lecture. He doesn't nod at anybody that it says. He simply gets up. He walks over, he grabs a pitcher, he pours some water into a bowl, takes off his robe, ties a towel around him. And the person that they call Lord kneels down in front of him and begins to wash their feet. Now remember what I said, whose job was it to wash people's feet? It was the lowliest of lows, the, the, the lowest of slaves that was considered at that time. That was the only person who was responsible for washing feet. 
But Jesus did it. And it says in verse 4, So he got up from the supper table, laid aside his robe, took a towel, tied it around himself. Next he poured the water into the basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, and to dry them with the towel tied around him. You know, these men have been around Jesus for quite some time, listening to him. And you, we can see throughout Scripture how they revered Jesus. And they did. Like they, they, uh, they, thought he, he, they knew that he was Lord. They knew that, um, that he had come to save them. And they knew that. So you've got to imagine at this time, whenever I said devastating humility, this has got to be just hurtful for the disciples, Right? Because can you imagine sitting in there with Jesus and Jesus gets up and starts washing the feet when all these things that Jesus has said before about being the greater, to, to be greater, like you need to be the least of these things and that you need to serve one another. You know, whenever that that happens, whenever that they, that they started remembering those things, it just had to be a gut punch. I mean, what do they say? They, they, they got to be confused. Like, do, do I tell him no? Like, how do I tell him no? Or, or, or should I have gone in already? I mean, we can learn from this incident as well. Man, the disciples, they were concerned with themselves. They were, they, they were being prideful. They, they knew the customs, but they didn't think about what was going on. And so <clears throat> uh, when any of us are tempted to think like that, when any of us are tempted to think of only of ourselves, man, I pray, open up this book, John chapter 13, Read one verses 1 through 17 and be reminded of the devastating humility of Jesus and what he did. So we get to point number two. Point number two. And remember, you can underline whatever word you want. Jesus teaches us in humility. Jesus teaches us in humility. All right. He gets to Peter. And Peter, God loved Peter. Peter is, uh, he, he, he loves to react and not necessarily think before he reacts. But, uh, but Peter is, is a great guy. And we see him all throughout Scripture. And when we get to verse 6, as Jesus is moving from disciple to disciple, Jesus finally gets to Peter, and he, and he begins to start to wash his feet. And Peter eventually says in verse 6, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? In verse, in verse 7, Jesus replied to Peter, What I am doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will know. Now at this point, Peter, he thinks the kingdom is still coming and that Jesus is king. He hasn't quite figured out yet the whole death, resurrection, and burial. He's heard it, but, but, but it's not quite computing. And, and, and so he was wondering at this point, How could a king be washing my feet? Are you really going to wash my feet, Jesus? Are you really going to do it? And then Jesus doesn't, doesn't just say yes. Jesus says, what I am doing now you don't understand, but you will. So Peter, he does what Peter does. He gets bold and he says in verse 8, you will never, you will never wash my feet ever. Now, if we really look at this, he recognizes Jesus is Lord as king, and he's like, there's no way that a king's going to be washing my feet, right? So he's not going to be washing my feet. But then he turns around and says, you are not going to be washing my feet. So now he's given his king an order to not wash his feet. Okay, he's kind of contradicting like his thoughts here on what he's doing. He's like, no, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus, being Jesus, says this in verse 8 through 9. If, you don't, if I don't wash you, 
you have no part with me. And then Simon replied, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Now Peter has gone the complete opposite. First, don't wash me at all. Secondly, man, wash my hands, wash my head. Man, wash me completely. He's, he's still not getting exactly what Jesus is trying, to, is, is trying to teach here. You know, there is there's a profound meaning in what's going on here because before Jesus started with something physical, and now he's kind of moved into something spiritual about washing of the feet. Like, what does this mean? Like, like there's two things going on. As Jesus did, as, as, as wise as he is, and as long as it took us uh, to be able to read the Scripture, and every time we read it, we, we, we find something new in this. Man, Jesus is doing multiple things here. He's not only washing their feet in the physical sin, he, he is showing them about washing their sins. And, <clears throat> and Peter's got to realize that if he, if he can't accept Jesus washing his feet and doing it the way that he wants to do, then he may have a hard time with accepting what's going to happen to Jesus in the next days. So he's got to be accepting of it. Now, <clears throat> We see that Jesus, all throughout Scripture, he spoke spiritual truth. He spoke spiritual truth to Nicodemus. He spoke spiritual truth to the woman at the well. And he, and he also um, spoke truth to many others um, along the way. And uh, whenever that he is saying, and whenever that he's telling Peter, like, you've got to wash me, he is saying, Peter, unless you allow me to wash you in a spiritual way, you are not clean and you have no part in me. You see, all cleansing in, in the spiritual realm comes through Christ. All cleansing of us with our soul comes through Christ Jesus. It, it is not something that we can do on our own. It is not something uh, that can be done by others around us. It can only be done by Jesus. We have to allow Jesus to wash us, to cleanse us. And in Titus 3, 5, says he saved us not only by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Nobody has a relationship with God except through Jesus Christ who cleanses us. And he's trying to show this here. Now, Peter eventually learned this after everything. We see in Acts 4, 12, that he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. Whenever that a man or woman puts faith in Jesus Christ, he is clean, she is clean by that, and not until then. We cannot be cleaned until we have that relationship with Jesus. Now, Peter, whenever that he was still thinking of kind of like the physical cleaning, he's like, go ahead and wash my hands and my feet. Well, Jesus replied in verse 10, Jesus still speaking of, of the spiritual truth of washing, said, one who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. All right, so... Whenever that we're going through these scriptures and we're trying to see what Jesus is, is trying to say here, he's, what he is saying is, is that uh, in that day of time, whenever that a person would get up, they take a bath, they go out throughout their day, whenever they went to, to house to house, they just had their feet clean. Why? Because that was the only part that really needed cleaning, right? You don't need to bathe all over again. But Jesus isn't really talking about the physical. He's talking about the spiritual our soul. So whenever that we become saved and we know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior and we have that relationship with him, 
whenever that we live that life then, whenever after that life, we are saved, but we don't need to be saved again. We don't need that to, we don't need Jesus to clean us again because he cleaned us already, but we still do sin. And that sin is what gets on us from day to day to day. And so Jesus is showing the representation of washing our feet, of washing away that sin, doing that because that's what we are to do every day, often, you know, keep ourselves clean. In First uh, John 1, 9, First, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse, and to cleanse us, uh, to keep on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Uh, Jesus knew that the, the disciples were cleansed from redemption. Like he knew that they were redeemed, that they, uh, that they knew who he was, they accepted who he was, uh, but he was trying to teach them, hey, it doesn't just end here. There's daily tasks that have to be done. So, we get to the last part of the scriptures here, and we start breaking those down. And we're going to cruise, I'm going to run out of some time, I think. But, it's okay, because there's no real games to watch this afternoon, so y'all just bear with me. Um, <laughs> just invite the second service to come on in. We'll, we'll just add to the mix. Uh, but when we get to the last part here, we see that Jesus wants us to show humility. So, Jesus wants us to show humility. This, this is our third part. Our, our third point there. And like I said, you can write that down, underline whichever word you want. It's greatness. Uh, so when we get to verse 12, we see, When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his robe, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. This is well said, for I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done for you. I assure you, a slave is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. All right. So we have started off with something physical. We have moved into something spiritual, and now we're back to the physical again. So we, we kind of took a little interlude there, but, but we are back to, uh, to the real point of what's going on here, and this is humility. He, he is arguing here that the greater... Um, that the greater must be lesser. Uh, and he, he argues this point about the greatest of these and the least of these and, and, and how that works in the spiritual realm and, and who's actually master and who's actually uh, servant. Now, when it comes to this, and we talk about foot washing, there's a few different, thing, a few different of opinion, especially in the church and even uh, uh, same-minded churches. There are some churches that believe uh, that what Jesus was doing here in, in foot washing is something that we should do, that this was really like the lesson that was being taught is that we should actually just wash other people's feet. And let me tell you, washing other people's feet is, is tremendous. And we have done it here in this church. We have done it at our men's conference up here up front. We have had men washing other people's feet. And, man, it's been, it's been an amazing uh, uh, time to be able to be a part of that, to actually sit down and, and to just serve one another to actually wash a person's uh, feet. I mean, it, I don't even know how to, um, to, to really say or express what that is like until you actually do it. We have actually done it in our youth groups, too, at camps, and, and, and had our seniors like have their uh, feet washed as they are graduating and going on, and then they turn around and wash the junior's feet as they're the next class that is coming up. And that's a powerful scene to see, and I guarantee you that none of those teenagers will ever forget that day uh, that, uh, that we did that. It was, it was powerful. And so 
Some people believe that that's the ordinance here, and, and, and I believe that it is something that we should do, but, but really what Christ is saying is that this is an example. You want to do this, great, but it is just an example. There are other things that you need to do. We need to be able to show humility. We, <clears throat> for verse 15 says, For I give you an example that you also do just as I have done. Okay, this is an example as. Now, he's not necessarily saying do the same thing. If you want to do that, then do it. Uh, but we need to have that act of humility. Because Jesus, the king that reigned up on high, okay, who came down from heaven, who came down to earth to be with us, lowered himself to be that servant to the other disciples, lowered himself, who was only consumed with them and teaching them and loving on them. He washed their feet. What else can we do for others? He's saying, man, go out, serve one another. Be humble about it. Man, see a need, meet a need. You know, I was, uh, I, th- I taught a couple of weeks ago, like on a Wednesday night, and uh, one of the members in our church gave me this article, and uh, it's titled, It's Getting Harder to Talk About God. Uh, it's by Jonathan Merritt, uh, Duluth, Georgia, Cross, Cross Point Church. And, uh, and he, you know, one of the things insane, like in churches, man, we don't hear as much um, God talk anymore as we used to. And, you know, we just kind of, well, maybe, yeah, okay. And we just kind of accept it. But he wanted to actually put some facts and figures behind it. And so he went to the Barna Group, which is a research group, and, uh, and, and he wanted to, uh, to really find out, like, like, is this true or not? And so after surveying like over a thousand American adults, he, he, he came up with these uh, uh, stats here. It says more than one-fifth of respondents say that they have not had a spiritual conversation at all in the past year. Six in ten say they had a spiritual conversation only on rare occasions, either once or twice, or several times, 29% said, in the past year. A paltry 7% of Americans say that they talk about spiritual matters regularly, just 7%. But here's the real shocker, he says. Practicing Christians who attend church regularly aren't very much better. A mere 13% had a spiritual conversation once a week. According to his survey, a range of, uh, of conflicts is, is driving America's from God talk. Um, he wanted to see, like, how many uh, words are being used. And so they used, uh, if you don't know, like, there's been ton, uh, that there's a program that indexes and scans all books and publications from 1500 all the way up to recent times. So you can go in there and you can search and find words. So he wanted to see spiritual words, like how many of those uh, were still around and still being used. Uh, it says here that, uh, that the study uh, analyzed 50 terms associated with moral, moral virtue. Language about the virtues Christian called the fruit of the spirit, words like love, patient, gentleness, and faithfulness has become rare. Humility words like modesty fell 52%. And compassion words like kindness dropped 56%. And gratitude words like thankfulness declined 42%. This is just in our writings. All right. We need to change that around. And we can do it right here, right now, starting right here, right now. It can be tough talking with people. And if you missed out on our Wednesday night classes, man, you've really missed an, an amazing uh, semester about being witnesses. And, and, and it's a really humble thing, and it can feel humiliating when you're in it, when you're witnessing. But man, when you think about the love that you have for one another, humility goes out the window. I mean, if you truly love somebody, you'll, you'll share with somebody. And I came up kind of with two things after reading this scripture. 
that I think that really stands out. And those two things are, first, the lack of humility is the absence of love. The lack of humility is the absence of love. If we don't have love, we're not showing humility, right? And the other one is kind of the reverse. To love is to show humility. Jesus did it, and he did it in an amazing way. And he did it in a way that none of his disciples ever saw coming. And you can imagine that they thought about that to the end of their lives. I want to close with a story about D.L. Moody. He's a prominent pastor uh, in the 1800s. Uh, wrote many things, many things that we still read today. Uh, a large group of European pastors had come over for, for one of his conferences. And, and while they were here, uh, these European pastors, whenever that they went to their rooms for the night, they left their shoes out in the hallway. And this was customary in that time for them to leave their shoes because there was a hall servant that would come down and, and, and polish their shoes. But guess what? They were in America. Okay, even back then, no way, we're not going to be doing that. And so one night, Moody was walking down the hallway, and he saw this, he saw the shoes, and he knew what it meant. And uh, he went and he talked to some of his uh, friends there, a couple of them, and he didn't get much of a response from them. So D.L. Moody went back, he gathered up all those shoes, he went into his room, and he started polishing them. Put them out one by one. Now, the only way that we know this, because he never told anyone, was an unexpected friend had made a visit and saw what he was doing. When he saw what he, had, what he had done, he went and told his other people about it. And the next day, whenever that everybody came out of the room, their shoes were all nice and polished, and no one ever knew that it was Moody that did it. But throughout that week, when those other people had talked about what he had done, they ended up taking turns, cleaning, cleaning those people's shoes, polishing them without ever telling anybody what they had done a true sense of humility and i gotta think that moody being one of the one of the great men that he was that's that's why god used him because he based everything off his servant's heart so we have a chance to be humble today and as the worship team comes out